As we've been doing the series on on the Minor Prophets, one of the books I've really been looking forward to doing throughout this series has been the book of Habakkuk. It's one of my uh, favorite books. I never had an opportunity before uh, tonight to preach through it, so I've been looking forward to studying this book out. And I hope you will be uh, encouraged uh, through this study tonight and also challenged uh, from the preaching of God's Word. But if you found your place in Habakkuk chapter 1, I ask if you're able to stand, if you stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll just read the first four verses to begin with. And um, here in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, the Bible says, The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and they are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Let's start off with a word of prayer. Dear Father, Lord, just thank you once again for the privilege and opportunity I have tonight uh, to stand behind this pulpit and proclaim your word. Lord, I just pray that if there's any sin in my life, you'll forgive me of that. You'll empty me of myself and, and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, and that be your message going forth, Lord, and uh, not rather than mine. And I pray that you'll use... Um, your message tonight, in spite of any of my shortcomings, uh, Lord, that that uh, you'll use this to encourage uh, hearts, uh, Lord, of of who you are, and Lord, how how it is that you are on the throne, and uh, that your your plan is is best, and that we just need to trust in you, Lord. And we give you all the praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, not much is known about uh, the prophet Habakkuk other than his name, which means to embrace. Martin Luther explained the meaning of the prophet's name in this way. Habakkuk signifies an embracer, or one who embraces another, takes him into his arms. He embraces his people and takes them to his arms. In other words, he comforts them and holds them up as one embraces a weeping child to quiet it with the assurance that if God wills, it shall soon be better. When you study this book, it becomes quite evident how, how fitting how appropriate Habakkuk's name is as this book serves as a comforting reminder that God is on His throne. Now, there has been difference of opinion as to the time of the prophetic ministry of Habakkuk. If you remember, as we've, as we've studied through these minor prophets, a lot of, a lot of them mention uh, some of the kings that were reigning as these prophets were writing. No mention is given here of, of who it is that was on the throne uh, while Habakkuk uh, was ministering. Some believe he perhaps ministered during the reigns of either the wicked king Manasseh or the godly king Josiah. But most likely, he ministered during the reign of Jehoiakim, one of the final kings of Judah. The reason for this is because of the sins prevalent in Israel pictured in this book and from the manner in which Habakkuk speaks of the Chaldeans or as we more commonly know them, uh, the Babylonians. If this is true, this would make Habakkuk a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah shortly before the Babylonian invasion which would begin in 605 B.C. The book of Habakkuk differs from the regular addresses of the prophets who ministered to Israel. Habakkuk's book is a record of his own experience of soul with God. Most prophets, they spoke for God to men. But Habakkuk argues with God about his dealings with men. We are reminded in this regard of Jonah among the prophets and of Job among the, among the poetic books. Primarily and essentially, Habakkuk is the prophet of faith. The keystone of the whole book 
is chapter 2, verse 4. Verse well known, I'm sure, to, to most, if not all of us here tonight. The just shall live by his faith. His main theme here of the just shall live by his faith, like Psalm 73 and, and other Old Testament passages, was the affliction of the godly and the prosperity of the ungodly. He dwells on the perfect dealings of God and the development of faith in God's people. So tonight we're going to look at, at uh, this book in its entirety, and really you can divide it uh, into, the ch- into the three chapters uh, that has already been divided in in our Bibles. In chapter 1, we see that the prophet is troubled. In chapter 2, we'll see the prophet is taught. And finally, in chapter 3, the prophet is triumphant. But let's begin, first of all, in chapter 1, with the prophet is troubled. The prophet is troubled. And we begin in the first four verses with the crimes of Judah. We read these verses already, so I won't reread them for sake of time. But Habakkuk begins here with a complaint. Well, first of all, he says the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. So burden, you know, it's just something that, that's really troubling him. He sees this and it just, it just is, is troubling his heart uh, to see this, the, the condition that the nation of Judah is in. And so he begins with a complaint. Oh, oh Lord, how long shall I cry and thou will not hear? Why? Because everywhere that Habakkuk looks, he sees sin and he sees pain. The people of Judah were robbing one another, committing acts of violence and raising up strife and contention everywhere they went. Furthermore, as uh, verse 4 says, the law was slacked. In other words, it it was rendered ineffective or paralyzed. There was no authority or force behind it. Why? Because unrighteous judges had made a mockery of the law. There was no point in, in if, if you're wrong, there was no point in trying to go to the legal system to try and get justice because there was none to be found. With judgment corrupted, both life and property were unprotected. The wicked took every advantage they could and the righteous were left defense, defenseless. And because God did not punish their sin immediately, men began to believe they could sin with impunity. Men would be like, well, I got away with it this time, so I'm going to get away with it this time, and I'll get away with it next time. And it, just, it was just a vicious cycle. And they just, all these wicked men would just continually take advantage of, of those that were righteous, those that were trying to do right, those that were poor, those that were um, widows and, and homeless and everything. They were left with nothing. And Habakkuk sees this, and he sees... Now, again, remember, this is Judah. This is, they were to be the, the, God's people. They were in a covenant relationship with God. And, and God, you know, as God's people, they should have known better. And Habakkuk realizes this and he says, God, what is going on? Everywhere I look, nothing, nothing but sin and pain for those that are being uh, taken advantage of. And God, why haven't you done anything? Why aren't you acting? Why are you not uh, intervening on behalf of those that are being wronged? God, why are you, you're, you're supposed to be a holy God. You're supposed to be a righteous God. Why are you not doing anything to stop the sin that is, that is rampant among your people? He's like, God, how long am I going to have to cry out for this? How long am I going to have to pray before you will judge this wickedness? So Habakkuk, he cries out and he begs God to no longer remain silent. He wants to see justice prevail. The silence of God in human affairs can be a difficult thing to understand. Well, this is evident in our own society. 
Sin, just like it was in Habakkuk's day, sin is rampant. Sin is everywhere we look. Everywhere. We live in one of the most wicked societies that has ever lived. It's like, probably a lot like it was in the days of Noah. It's like it was in the days of the judges when everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. It's rampant. And like Habakkuk, perhaps we wonder, when, when will God act? We think, how much longer are God's people going to be left to, to just defenseless? We wonder, you know, how is it that a Christian baker can lose everything just because he refuses to, to bake a cake for a homosexual wedding? We wonder how it is that every type of, of sinful lifestyle and every type of, of immoral, immoral thing can be promoted in society as that which is good and that which is, is perfectly normal. Yet Christianity is attacked on, every, on all sides. We wonder, God, when are you going to act? When are you going to intervene? That's, that's, what, that's what Habakkuk is doing here. But the fact is, is that God is still on His throne. If our hearts are stirred over the prevalence of sin and ungodliness, God is all the more deeply concerned. Because He's a holy God. God hates sin. And so if we're concerned, imagine how much more concerned God is. And we may think at times, like, God, are, are you there? Like, do you care? Because we, we see that, we sometimes see God not acting, but God does care. And He is concerned by it. God hears our cries just as He heard Habakkuk's. Though as we're about to see, Habakkuk isn't going to like God's answer. So we have the first four verses, the crimes of Judah, and then the rest of the chapter, the coming of judgment. The coming of judgment. We begin, first of all, verses 5 through 11, of the invincibility of the Chaldeans. The invincibility of the Chaldeans. Notice verses 5 through 11 says, Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it will be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed on themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards. And are more fierce than the evening wolves. And the horsemen shall spread themselves. And the horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind. And they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And they shall scoff at the kings. And the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold. For they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change. He shall pass over and offend, imputing that his power that this his power unto his God. God's answer to the sin of Judah was the rise of the world power of the nation of Babylon. God was going to use Babylon to chasten Judah. Babylon is the tool, but God claims it as his work. Notice again where he says in verse 6, For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans. In verses 6 to 11, give a vivid description of how powerful and unstoppable the Babylonian armies were. 
Basically, Babylon had every tactical advantage possible. They had the strength. They had the speed. They had the intelligence. There was no stopping them. Let me put it this way. Let me, let me illustrate this way. It'd be like the Toronto Maple Leafs playing hockey against the Pee Wee hockey team. Who do you think is going to win? How many think the Pee Wee hockey team is going to win? Yeah, I didn't think so. The Leafs are going to totally obliterate that team. And that is what it was like with the Babylonian army versus all their opposition. It was impossible to stop these guys. They had every tactical advantage. Going back to verse 5, God promises that He's about to do a work which no one would believe even if they were told. While this work is not specifically mentioned, the context of the passage dictates that it has to do with the Babylonian armies, the nation of Babylon. The most likely explanation would be Babylon's destruction of the nation of Assyria. Assyria, if you'll recall, from several other of the minor prophet books we looked at, was a terror, absolute terror to the nations of the world during her reign of power. It was Assyria who destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and who would have destroyed the southern kingdom had God not miraculously intervened. Assyria was just an absolute force in the world. And people, I'm sure, the nations that were being oppressed by Assyria were, were looking at Assyria and like, oh man, there is no way we're ever going to be able to take them down. There's no stopping them. There's no way that any nation ever is going to rise up and be able to stop these guys. They have everything. And so when I think of, of God's words here in verse 5, I'll work a work in, you, in your days which you will not believe, they'll be told you. I think what, what God is talking about is the fact that it was actually the Babylonian army that would come in and actually just obliterate the Syrian nation. What a feat that was to come in and absolutely wipe Assyria off the face of the earth. No more were they any type of, of power after Babylon was through with them. No one could have predicted it. It is exactly what happened. And if Assyria didn't survive, what hope did Judah or any other nation have? So we see the invincibility of the Chaldeans. And then verses 12 to 17, we have the iniquity of the Chaldeans. Upon hearing God's answer, Habakkuk was quite upset. Notice uh, verses 12 to 17. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment. And Almighty God, thou hast established them for correction. He says, God, I understand that the judgment needs to come. He says, Thou art of pure eyes and behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he, and make his men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with the angle, they catch them in their net, and gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice under their net and burn incense under their dray, because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations 
So, Habakkuk, he asks the question, God, when are you going to act? God says, I am going to act. It's, it's coming soon. I'm going to send this, the Chaldeans and they're going to come and, and they'll be the instrument of judgment. And Habakkuk's like, God, I don't understand it. Yes, he understands Judah's wicked. They deserve to be punished. But by Babylon? Seriously, God? Babylon. Why would God send a nation even more wicked than the nation of Judah to punish Judah? It just didn't make any sense to him. In verse 11, God states that the successes of the Babylonian Empire would multiply. Yet in all their victories, they would glory in their own successes, refusing to recognize God's sovereignty. In verses 14 to 17, Habakkuk points out that to, to the Babylonians, human life was cheap. They treated men as one would the fish of the sea who have no defenses or rights. Habakkuk wonders if they wouldn't slay all nations if God even let them. So Habakkuk's mind, he wrestles with all this. He, like I said, he understands Judah is God's covenant people. He understands that Babylon will not be used to destroy Judah. That's what he means there by we shall not die in verse 12. He understands they're not there to destroy Judah, only to chasten them. He just simply can't understand how could a holy God use such a wicked people to punish his people that all the wicked are less wicked than the nation of Babylon. It's like, God, I don't get it. What are you doing? And then we get to chapter 2. So chapter 1, the prophet is troubled. But in chapter 2, the prophet is taught. And God's going to use all this to teach Habakkuk some things, to teach the nation of Israel some things, and by extension, teach us some things as well. And we see in verses 1 through 4, God's righteousness seen on the individual level. Let's go ahead and look at those verses. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So chapter 2 begins with Habakkuk waiting for a response from God. God has already answered his first question, so he is confident that God will answer this one as well. So just as a watchman is set to keep an eye on that which occurs outside a fortified city, so the prophet stations himself in spirit to await God's answer to his inquiry. And as expected, God does answer him and tells Habakkuk to write this answer down legibly so that the one who read it could run and tell others the good news contained therein. And this message that Habakkuk was to write down was one of deliverance. Now, it wasn't to come immediately, but it was coming at the appointed time. And the first lesson that, that God had for Habakkuk in this was the timing of God. The timing of God. The fact is that God doesn't work according to our timetables. He doesn't. Now, we often prefer God to act right away. And we want something... You know, we want, we want that to happen right away. You know, if, if you're, you have a, a health need, 
You want God to heal you right away. If you have a financial problem, you want God to meet that financial need need right away. We don't like to wait. We're not very patient. I know I'm not. I struggle with that. We want God to act immediately. We want God to act according to our timetables and what fits our plan and what we think is best for us. But God doesn't act to our timetable. He acts according to His timetable. God will not be rushed, neither will He be delayed. God has a plan, and He will fulfill His plan in His timing, not ours. The second lesson that God had for Habakkuk was the truth and trustworthiness of God. God is promising deliverance. Sure, it wasn't going to happen necessarily when they wanted it to, but they could count on the fact that God would deliver them as He promised. My encouragement to you is, don't give up on God when He seems to be silent. God will fulfill all the promises contained in His Word. If you're going through something, and you think, God, well, God, what am I supposed to do in this? Just trust God. He can be trusted. He has never failed. There's a song, a choir did it, I believe, a few months ago. Jesus never fails. What a truth in that statement. He never fails. The Bible says he also, he never leaves us nor forsakes us. God's never going to let you down. We let him down more often than we care to admit. But God will never let us down. He will always fulfill his promises. Then in verse 4, we come to the theme of the entire book. The just shall live by his faith. But unlike the quotes in the New Testament, which I'll talk about in a moment, in Habakkuk, the original quote of this, there's actually an extra statement. For it says the just shall live by faith. It says, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So this statement, the just shall live by his faith, is in contrast to the one whose soul is lifted up in pride and deceit, such as the nation of Babylon. So God's saying to Habakkuk, who's questioning, God, why, why would you use the Babylonian nation? And God explains to him, look, the soul who's, who's, that who's, uh, what is it? Expression there. The soul which is lifted up and is not upright in him. God's saying, look, Babylon, man, their, their souls lifted up in pride and deceit. You know what the outcome of that is? Death and destruction. And what God says is, Habakkuk, the just shall live by his faith. You want to live? Just trust in God. That's the key. Trust in one's self and one's own abilities is a path of destruction, but those who trust in God will live. And so vital is this statement that is repeated three times in the New Testament. You know, if God says something once, it's got to be pretty important, correct? I mean, of all the things that God could have, have recorded for us, of all the things He could record us, this is what He narrowed it down to. The Bible says in uh, the end of the book of John that, you know, if everything that Jesus did were to be recorded, you know, the, the, the world can contain all the books. So, God narrowed it down in a nutshell to this. The Word of God. This is what He believed we, we needed most of everything He could have given us. So, if God said, said something in His Word, it's got to be important. And if God says something 
four times. How important must it be? The just shall live by his faith. And so it's quoted three times in the New Testament. In Romans, the emphasis is on the just. And just again, a, a brief uh, summary of how the New Testament uh, passages use this Old Testament verse. So Romans, the emphasis is on the just and how it is uh, that we are, are justified, how God's righteousness is placed on our accounts when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And God no longer sees our sin, but He sees Christ's righteousness and setting. He justifies us. He declares us to be righteous. And in Galatians, the emphasis is on the word live. And that um, through Christ and through faith that we will live. It talks about one of the most well-known verses in Galatians. We are crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And in Hebrews, the emphasis is on faith. And of course, we have in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith of men and women that have lived exemplary life of faith, of trusting in God and being faithful to God. And so all that is encapsulated in this statement here in Habakkuk, the just shall live by his faith, and how important it is for us to live by faith. And and the one thing different, too, about that phrase in Habakkuk as opposed to the New Testament quotes, is in Habakkuk says, his faith. It's a personal faith. It's not enough that your parents have faith or that your spouse has faith, that they're trusting in God. We each individually must make the choice to trust in God. So God's righteousness is seen on the individual level in verses 1 to 4. But in verses 5 to 20, God's righteousness is seen on the international level. And the following verses are five woes taken up and uttered by all the nations and peoples who have suffered at the hand of the cruel oppression of Babylon. It says that there in getting verse 5. He also, because he trans, speaking of Babylon, because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, and enlargeth his desire as hell and as, as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gather unto him all nations, and heaveth unto him all people. So Babylon, they're just, they were never satisfied. They just wanted more. They just wanted to take more uh, stuff. They wanted to defeat more people. It says, verse 6, Shall not all these take up a parable against him, and a taunting proverb against him, and say... And then we have a series of five woes. Verses 6 to 8, a woe against their crimes. It says, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. How long? And to him that layeth himself with thick clay. Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee, and awake that shall vex thee, and that shall be for booties unto them? Because thou hast spoiled many nations... All the remnant of the people shall spoil thee because of men's blood and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. Babylon had repeatedly taken what did not belong to them. How long did they think they could plunder with impunity? Likewise, the day would come when someone would rise up and bite them. The spoiler would be spoiled. The plunderer would be plundered. And all this would come to Babylon for their shedding of blood and violence inflicted upon the nations which would be fulfilled not much long after uh, at the end of the Babylonian exile of Judah by the Medo-Persian Empire. In, in verses 9 to 11, woe is pronounced against their covetousness. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people, and hast sinned against thy soul. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. The second sin was out of covetousness and self, self-exaltation. 
They coveted more and more in order that they could exalt themselves as the greatest among the nations. But all this accomplished was adding shame to their account and set themselves up for divine retribution. Verses 12 to 14, woe is uh, pronounced against their cruelties. Woe to him that built a town with blood, establisheth the city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very uh, vanity? For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Their cities were built with blood, for the wealth by which Babylon built their massive city and magnificent buildings was gained from bloody wars. Furthermore, captive labor was used to build the grand structures of the empire. But it was all to be in vain, and the work for naught when their empire is destroyed. Now the ultimate destruction, we don't have time to really get into this, but the ultimate destruction of Babylon is yet future. If you recall Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon for many years. In his dream in Daniel 2, of the statue, and the head of gold which represented Babylon, and then the torso of silver which represented the Medo-Persian Empire, and then you had bronze which represented the Grecian Empire, and then the, uh, the clay which represented the Roman Empire, and then, suddenly, then finally there was the, the boulder that represented Christ that would come and destroy that statue. And so the ultimate destruction of Babylon is yet future. Um, when the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Another passage you can look at too is, is Revelation 18, where um, 18, where in, during that time Babylon uh, is resurrected, uh, at least in some form or fashion, and, and God ultimately then, then and there in Revelation, Revelation 18 destroys Babylon once and for all. Verses 15 to 17, woe is pronounced against their carousing. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth thy bottle to him. And make them drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts which made them afraid, because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. This next woe can be interpreted both personally and nationally. Verse 15 serves as a powerful condemnation of alcohol and the immorality that so often accompanies it. You know, we live in, in a society, even amongst Christians, that, you know, like to claim that, you know, drinking is okay as long as you don't get drunk. I don't believe that for one second. There's too many warnings in Scripture of the dangers of alcohol for God to permit it. Uh, just in certain amounts. All you have to do is just see those that, that abuse alcohol and see the, the, what accompanies it and the, the sin and shame that accompanies it and I don't know why anyone want to even just mess with that stuff. But as one commentator observes, the word neighbor here in this passage could also refer to a neighboring nation that was intoxicated by Babylon's power and made naked before Babylon's invading armies. In Scripture, uh, drinking a cup of wine can be a picture of judgment, as, as talked about in Jeremiah 25. And nakedness sometimes speaks of the devastating effects of, of military invasion, as seen in Isaiah 47. In fact, in a bit of irony, it was while Babylon was involved in drunken immorality that they finally fell. 
The events are, are talked about in, in the book of Daniel, chapter 5. And uh, Belshazzar, son of Nebuchadnezzar, is holding just this wicked party of, of, of booze and immorality and all sorts of wickedness is going on. And you'll probably remember the story because of, that's with the handwriting on the wall. Many, many Tekalu Farsin uh, that have been weighed in the, in the balances and are found wanting. And uh, while all this is going on inside Babylon, and they're just having a seemingly good old time, and, and they're thinking, oh, we're, you know, things are great, you know, we're at the height of our power, no one can touch us. The Medo-Persian armies are outside the city of Babylon. See, Babylon, the, the walls were so thick that at least two chariots could race side by side uh, along the top of the walls of Babylon. So they're thinking, oh, there's no one's getting in there. But the Medo-Persian armies were pretty smart. And there was a river that would flow through a gate into Babylon. And so the Medo-Persian empire, they, the armies there, they dug and diverted that water and walked right through where the water had flowed into Babylon, undetected and defeated Babylon with very, very little difficulty. Why? Because Babylon, again in that bit of irony, was too busy, drunk and involved in sin to know what was going on outside their gates. And finally, verses 18 to 20, woe, Against their cults. What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it? The molten image and the teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. Uh, woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake, to the dumb stone, Arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Woe here, the final woe was pronounced upon their greatest sin, the sin of idolatry. And Habakkuk, he points out the futility of idolatry by showing there's, there's just no profit or usefulness in idolatry. Idols are just stupid, inanimate objects. Like, they're handmade. Like, you people have made these idols and now you're worshiping them. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, what are you thinking? Like, oh, I'm going to make something and then put it up there on a pedestal and worship it. Like suddenly, somehow it has power. I don't understand. And so, Habakkuk, he points out the futility uh, of, of this. And like, just makes no sense. You know, they, they they have no power. You know, they can't, they can't even talk. Um, and you're putting your trust in, in those things? But then he contrasts it with God in verse 20. But the Lord is in His holy temple. And all the earth keeps silence before Him. Idols are nothing, but there is a, li- a living, all-seeing, all-knowing, ruling God in heaven. And the nations do well, as do all individuals, to submit silently to God. So we've seen in chapter 1, the prophet is troubled. In chapter 2, the prophet is taught. And finally in chapter 3, the prophet is triumphant. And here, we again have just that emphasis on faith. And we're going to see faith surrenders, faith sees, and faith soars. Verses 1 to 2, faith surrenders. It says, The prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet upon Shigionoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. 
In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. And Habakkuk chapter 3 is actually a very interesting chapter um, among the minor prophets because it is it is poetry. Um, and so poetry is one of those things that sometimes um, just the way things are, are written, it can be a little more difficult to understand. But there's still some good things here. And the word, just to explain here, the word shigionoth in chapter 3 verse 1 is the plural of shigion, which is mentioned in Psalm 7, which signifies a loud cry in a time of danger or joy. David used the word in a time of great danger. Habakkuk, the only other biblical writer to use the word, employed it at a time of pain and praise. See, with spiritual insight, Habakkuk saw that judgment must come, and he surrendered to the inevitable. The Babylonians would be God's instrument of chastisement upon the nation of Judah for her sin. But Habakkuk also saw the one thing that could avert judgment. Not legislation, not more law, but revival. He prayed that perhaps the Lord in His mercy would send revival. Real revival. The fact is, we have that same hope. We live in a world filled with wickedness. And boy, are we overdue for God's judgment. But let us not stop praying for revival. You know, I look in at church history and I see things like the, the Great Awakening. And I see um, instances like that where people just get on their knees before God and they repent of their sin and they just humble themselves before God and countless people are saved and, and people are on fire for God. The fact is, the God we serve today is the same God as then. God can do that today. But we need to pray. And we need to make sure that our hearts are where they need to be with God. And I read it of, of 2 Corinthians 7.14. Sorry, 2 Chronicles 7.14. And uh, this verse is specifically for the nation of Israel, but yet the, the, the principle of it applies to us even today. If my people which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear the land. So let's not stop praying. Faith surrenders. Secondly, faith sees. Verses 3 through 15. And faith sees, first of all, the Lord's majesty in verses 3 and 4. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. And His brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of His hand, and there was the hiding of His power. In a sublime manner, the prophet now pictures a future redemption under figures taken from past events. The background here is the memory of the events of the Exodus in Sinai. Just as the Lord manifested Himself when He redeemed Israel from Egypt, he will appear again to deliver the godly among his people from their oppressors among the nations and will judge their foes as he did in the land of Egypt. Faith sees the Lord's majesty. And then secondly, faith sees the Lord's power in verses 5 to 9. Before him went the pestilence and burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the, the tents of of uh, cushion and affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against rivers? 
Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea? That thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made, sorry, thy bow was made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribes. Even thy words, Selah, thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. Sorry, oh, in verse 10. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. So just as plagues preceded Israel's deliverance from Egypt, so too will plagues precede Christ's visible return to earth. Habakkuk pictures the Lord as, as stopping in his march and causing great upheavals in the earth. The Lord stood and measured the earth with his all-seeing glance. With irresistible power, his hand drove asunder the nations and overpowered them. The mountains were scattered as dust, and the hills bowed in reverence. When Israel entered Canaan, the nations were struck with, with fear, having heard of the great things that God had done. Likewise, that same fear will accompany the nations as Christ returns to defeat the nations risen up against Israel. Verses 11 and 12, they sees the Lord's intervention. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went. At the shining of thy glittering spear, thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thrush the heathen in anger. One of the coolest stories of Israel's conquest of Canaan was when God stopped the sun and moon in their respective places so that Israel could have victory in battle. And once again, using that as, as, the, as the, the template, uh, God is pictured as intervening on behalf of his people. And then finally, verses 13 to 15, faith sees the Lord's purpose. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the next, Selah. Thou didst strike through with the, with the saves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. The rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of great waters. The purpose behind God's actions in all these verses is the deliverance of His people. <coughs> Excuse me. What a great encouragement must have been to Israel that even though judgment was coming, that ultimately God would prevail. It's like the old song says, I've read the back of the book and we win. And finally, verses 16 to 19, faith soars. Faith soars. In verse 16, we see the prophet trembling. When I heard, my belly trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones. And I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. Verse 16 cycles back to the subject of verse 2. Habakkuk is still filled with, filled with fear and dread at the coming anguish of his people. He knows his homeland is to be overrun by the Babylonians. And it broke his heart. But verses 17 to 19, we see the prophet turning from trembling to the prophet trusting. All of the fig trees shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. What a, what a dreadful picture that he paints right there. Just hopeless situation. You think it's hopeless. But notice... Habakkuk's response. Yet, I'll rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And He will make my feet like hinds feet. And He will make me to walk upon my high places. 
to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. However, just as God's judgment was irreversible, so too was Habakkuk's joy irrepressible. Why? Because he was choosing to trust in God. He's, he's facing, in the nation of Israel, is facing one of the worst moments in their history. When Babylonians would come in and take them over and bring them into exile for 70 years, and they're away from their land for all that time, and just everything that's going on, and, and Habakkuk, knowing what's going to happen, knowing just what his people are going to go through, Instead of giving up, instead of throwing himself a pity party, he chooses to trust in God. He knew that the Lord God himself would be his strength, sustaining power. The fact is, too, when times seem tough, when when things are overwhelming, trust in God. Trust in God. He'll be your strength. I said it before, but it's like that poem, Footprints in the Sand. You know, when a, a man looks back at his life and he sees sometimes two sets of footprints and sometimes only one, and he asks God why he abandoned him during those difficult times of his life, God says, during those times, you only see one set of footprints because I picked you up and carried you. And God's, God's there. As I said already earlier tonight, God will never leave us nor forsake us. So if things are tough, don't give up on God. Don't throw in the towel. Don't quit. Trust God. I think one thing we see Evident from, from the book of Habakkuk is that, you know, Habakkuk here, he, he questions God. He, he vocally questions God and, and he's arguing with God. God, what are you doing? And I believe from Habakkuk's example, there's nothing wrong with questioning God in the right attitude. With, with the proper respect that God deserves. But I don't believe there's anything wrong with asking God, God, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? Well, you know, I'm going through this. God, it, it's it's tough. It's overwhelming. What What is your purpose in this? What is your plan? I don't understand, God. I need your help. What are you doing? I don't think there's wrong. To, it's wrong to do that. If you're doing it with the right attitude, just genuinely wanting to know what God wants and genuinely just wanting God's plan and then trusting God with the answer. Knowing that, as I said earlier, God's in control. Look, whatever is going on in your life does not negate the fact that God is on His throne. God's in control. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? God's not ever, you know, oh, oh, whoa, whoa, what, what happened to, to this person? You know, I thought they were doing well, suddenly something's gone wrong. God never caught off guard. God has a specific plan, a specific purpose. Trust in Him. I'm reminded of Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them are the call according to His purpose. We may not understand what that plan is, but if you are His child, everything, good and bad, will ultimately work out for your good and for His glory. So just trust God. Even when things are tough, even when life is hard, trust God, He's in control. Let's pray.